Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the head of the Coalition for Homelessness and Housing in Ohio about efforts to keep the homeless safe during the pandemic. The primary election is still going on by mail, and Daniel Barnett discusses that with the Ohio director of All Voting is Local. In the second half hour, courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light talks with several people about various issues, including how local business owners are working to help those who've lost their jobs because of the coronavirus. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the president of a university that has conducted distance learning for nearly 30 years. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone, Bill Faith, Executive Director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Just briefly, Bill, your agency, you're not a state agency. Uh, tell us uh, who you are and how you work. Well, we're an advocacy organization primarily. We advocate for public policies to address housing or homelessness issues. We do a, a, a number of training programs for people that work on these issues on the front lines. We, we do training and technical assistance for those groups. We, we run, you know, some project for homeless youth. We have a tenant hotline where we try to answer questions uh, from tenants, which have been really escalated right now because of all the people that are insecure about being able to pay their rent. Um, but we do a variety of things uh, to help support the housing and homeless efforts uh, on a, in normal times, in the, since this this pandemic hit us, we've been pretty much entirely focused on that. The, the number of our staff have shifted over from their old jobs to working on this, um, and you know we're, we're we are making some progress, but you know a lot more needs to be done. And what about with this social distancing going on right now? What about your office? What are you doing? But it just reminded me how fragile we are. Some of our staff are older. Some of them have health conditions. So it was important that we try to do the social distancing early. So we started doing that even before the stay-at-home order hit. So um, I think once they once they shut down the Arnold Classic, <laughs> I thought, <laughs> oh, my, we got a problem here. Yeah. Uh, it really didn't hit me till then. Yeah, that was quite a bold I, move early on, wasn't it? Yeah, and then when you think about it in terms of we don't want people congregating in the same place, and then you think about it in terms of everybody should stay at home, and if you're not feeling well, you should isolate and quarantine in your own home. So you apply all of those principles of social distancing and so forth um, to the homeless situation where we have 10,000 people every day crowded into more than 300 homeless shelters throughout the state. Wow. Um, you realize that we've got a lot of work to do just to address that particular need. Um, these groups are not well resourced. They don't have medical staff, for example. Um, in some cases, the, in kind of the biggest ones, we had 425 people in the same facility um, sleeping in dormitory style, um, being in there 
you know, particularly now, being in the facility for large amounts of the day. And, um, and then, you know, they go out in the community to get all of their various needs met. Um, so that's not necessarily a good thing. And um, a lot of the ways they use to get their needs met, whether it's food or other things they need, a lot of those programs aren't even operational right now. So the, the needs on the homeless system are pretty pretty severe, and we've been uh, trying to analyze those needs and survey the groups that are on the front lines and helping them to reduce their density so that they're moving people out of the shelters, um, moving in, into hotels and motels, setting up isolation and quarantine facilities. Um, so, and we don't really have government funding, um, you know, going to those efforts for the most part. It's been kind of philanthropic and private dollars. We, you know, we set up a Ohio's Pandemic Emergency Fund and have raised close to a million dollars um, to help distribute out to groups. We've done truckloads of supplies out to the various shelters around the state. Um, they'll get delivery of 30,000 masks um, that, that the staff and residents can begin wearing. These aren't anything fancy. They're basic sanitary disposable masks, but in many cases, these are the first masks that they have had. Um, and we started a mask period, we call it, which are folks around the state which are making homemade masks and distributing those to shelters in their communities. Um, the, you know, there's a various government agencies that have tried to provide some flexible funds to support this work. The Housing Finance Agency uh, donated $5 million to those efforts around the state, um, and other, other funds have been made available. So we're, we're going to see how this goes. The, these, uh, you know, the federal funds that got approved in the CARES Act will take two months to get to the people on the front lines. And it's just, even though that's, that's expedited from the federal government standpoint, um, we have to figure out ways to get, to get over the next two months. And that's why the, our pandemic fund is so important. Uh, because at least it provides some funding out there to get some stuff going. Um, and then there's other other pots of money we're looking at trying to free up too, including FEMA dollars, um, TANF dollars, temporary assistance for needy family funding to help the families with children. And we're advocating for a, a big rental assistance program in the next round of the uh, federal legislation to address the pandemic. Talking with Bill Faith, Executive Director, Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. You gave a number of 10,000 homeless. Can you give us kind of an, a general idea of maybe per major city, how many there are in each city around the state? This was only doing the census of the shelter program. So this is this doesn't count people that are unsheltered, mm -hmm. the people that are looking out on the land. 
or people that are in other kinds of programs that aren't really shelters. So if they're if they're living in a scattered site housing project, we we're less concerned about them because they're not all congregated together. But I'd have to get you the breakdown. I don't have that off the top of my head. You know, we're looking at 88 different counties. Most counties have some kind of a shelter program or at least one in their region. Um, you know, Lake County has a 60-bed shelter. I um, mean, you don't necessarily think about that with Lake County being a suburban county. Right. Um, but, of course, the, the cities have... The big, biggest cities have very large programs in some cases where there's hundreds of people in a single shelter. Um, so it varies around the state, but there's really no region of the state that is exempt from this. Federal relief checks have gone out. I, I, I don't know of any reason why homeless folks would not be eligible to receive one. Of course, getting them is another story, but is there any effort for that to happen? Yeah, it's a big concern of ours. So if people filed an income tax return in 2018, which many of our homeless uh, folks did, I mean, they, many of our folks work, or at least they were working in 2018, um, you know, many of them worked in 2019. So they, they were known to the IRS um, in many cases that they, you know, they filed those, those returns, but where they filed those returns could have been in a very different community than where they are right now. And um, whether or not they have the same bank account that electronically, uh, you know, electronic transfer could be accomplished or um, or not. If paper checks are going to be very difficult for homeless people to receive because if they're in a if they've been in a homeless situation for the last, you know, month or so, you know, they may have moved eight times in that month. They may have been in different locations eight different times. I mean, even in different shelters, or maybe they doubled up with somebody for a while. So that create, creates a real challenge. We're also afraid of the predatory check cashers and other scumbags that, that that prey on people that don't have uh, banking services, um, you know, that, that will take big amounts of their their check to cash it, you know, for a big fee. Um, we've heard that some of our banks have stepped up to say that they will offer those check cashing services without charge in, these, in this case. So we're hoping that those connections get, get made. But we're, we're concerned even about even when people are de- eligible for those payments, whether or not um, they're going to get hooked up with the with the uh, with the checks. If those checks do end up uh, not being delivered or cashed, would that money at least at some point be in the state's unclaimed fund, where they might be able to access it at some point later? I have no idea. I don't know if that'll work or not. That's, that's an interesting idea. You know, I was thinking the other day, the way that so many people now are working from home, and, you know, even as an example, we are, we're, we're doing newscasts and, and radio shows from home where, you know, a few months ago, that wouldn't have been conceivable. And, and I'm wondering, 
these high-rise office buildings downtown that have thousands of people working in them who are now doing those jobs at home. Is it even feasible for a business to refill those office towers? And if not, might they someday become affordable housing? Well, that's not the craziest thing I've heard lately. I, that's always possible. We, we're we looking at utilizing empty hotels and motels around the state for housing mm-hmm. for our, our the people that need it. We've had great cooperation from the Hotel Motel Association to make those connections. And um, a number of our groups at the local level have, have set up such arrangements. Um, the other thing that, we're, that some groups have looked at are empty dormitory space in the colleges and universities um, who are also closed right now, uh, or even other facilities within those university settings. There's been a, a few of those set up around the state already, and, and I think more of those are being explored. But um, I think everybody hopes that People will get back to work. I think, you know, they will start filling up those offices uh, sometime before too long. But when I look at the what our public health officials are telling us, I don't see how that's going to happen on a broad scale anytime real soon. I think the, the certainly we don't want to go back to sheltering people in large congregate facilities anytime real soon, at least not until we have a vaccine that's been deployed around the world. Just a moment or so to go here with Bill Faith, Executive Director, Coalition on on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Uh, Bill, you mentioned uh, all these funds that you're giving to homeless shelters around Ohio, and uh, if folks want to help out through your agency, how do they do that? Well, if they go to our website, which is, you know, uh, cohio.org, C-O-H-H-I-O, and click on the button that talks about the Ohio's uh, pandemic emergency fund they could make a donation um, securely online and I can guarantee them that a hundred percent of the money they donate will be given to the groups working on the front lines we're taking no fees we're, we're actually covering the fee that the online portal charges we're going to cover that ourselves and then uh, we're not taking any money for admin it's all going to go directly to serve the people in need um, and we definitely need more money there because it's, it's one of the only ways we've been helping these groups piece together their response. I think the other thing is people should, you know, make masks. I mean, just, you know, anybody that has, is handy with a needle and thread that can make masks, and we can hook them up with shelters in their area who can use those masks right away. Um, sometimes the masks that we've been sending to these programs is the first first ones that they've had, and I just very much worry about the, the staff people and the residents in these facilities, um, you know, operating without any kind of a protective gear at all. So those are just a couple ways. Shelters have also lost a lot of their volunteers who were older, people that it was no longer safe for them to continue to volunteer, or people that had health issues. So they've lost a lot of their people. So we, we are looking for people that are willing to volunteer to work um, on helping homeless people in these, in these programs. Um, so that's just a few ways that we have church groups and other folks that have rallied to do 
remote assembling of meals and deliver them to the shelters because many of them have a hard time feeding people right now because they just lack the food and they lack the space to prepare all the meals that are needed in these programs. So there's a variety of ways people can help, and uh, it really is going to take all of us pitching in to get through this. All right, and Bill, uh, give us the website again one more time. It's Cohio, C-O-H-H-I-O dot org, and the name of the fund is Cohio's Pandemic Emergency Fund. All right, Bill Faith, Executive Director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Good luck with your effort, Bill. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. The deadline to vote by mail in Ohio's primary election is rapidly approaching, and while you might look at a calendar and think, oh, I have more than a week to get that taken care of if you haven't already, realistically, some of those deadlines may be closing in faster than you think. Thanks for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Brickner. Mike is the Ohio State Director for an organization known as All Voting is Local. They are a voting rights organization. Here today to talk about uh, the steps that you need to take to vote by mail if you haven't done so already. And with uh, processing times being what they are, you might need to move more quickly than you had planned. Mike, thanks for joining me today on Columbus Perspective. How's it going? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike, all things considered. It's about the best answer we can give right now, right? Um, Let's go ahead and start with, I kind of hate to use this term if you've been living under a rock, but if you don't know why the primary elections are being done by mail, if you don't know why they've been postponed by about six weeks, Mike, can you run down the process by which, the series of events by which we've come to this point? Yeah, so it's been a very confusing time for, I think, a lot of Ohioans, and not just because of the elections, but because we've had this whole COVID-19 crisis uh, happen, and it's impacting, you know, every aspect of our lives. And so um, elections are no different. Uh, Many of us were planning to vote uh, in person on March 17th for the primary election, and uh, the day before the election, um, it was postponed, and uh, that led people to be very, I think, confused, uh, quite a chaotic process because we spent uh, about a week or so not really sure uh, how or when we were going to vote. And the uh, elected officials came up with a plan that now we are going to go to an all vote by mail system uh, for this primary election. And that, um, you know, voters have sort of a short time frame um, because, you know, many boards of elections were not planning to uh, do all vote 
workload by mail. So they are really, you know, struggling with, uh, I think, you know, small staff and not a lot of resources to process all of these absentee ballot uh, request forms and get all of these ballots out into the hands of voters. Um, so we have to, you know, request our absentee ballots as soon as possible. The deadline to get your absentee ballot back to your Board of Elections is April 28th. So time is of the essence to, to get that going. And my understanding is that right now there are some pretty significant delays in processing those applications and then getting the ballots back to the boards of elections. Can you talk about realistically, uh, yes, you can request them uh, up until very close to that April 28th deadline, uh, but realistically, if you want to get your absentee ballot in, when should you make that request and when should you mail it in? Yeah, the, the technical cutoff to get your absentee ballot uh, request form in is going to be April 25th. But again, you have to then uh, receive your ballot uh, by mail uh, and get it postmarked back to the Board of Elections by April 27th. So if you think about, you know, the 25th is a Saturday, uh, no mail is delivered on Sunday, and then you have to have your ballot uh, postmarked back uh, by the uh, 27th to get to the Board of Elections, um, that is going to be very difficult to do. And so that is why we're really encouraging people, you know, as soon as possible, you need to get your uh, request form in. There are a couple ways to maybe save a little bit of time on that. So you do have the ability, if you do have the request form, um, keep in mind, you know, postal mail takes about three to five days to, you know, reach somebody. Um, so if you want to cut off a little bit of time, you can can take your absentee ballot request form and you can put it into uh, the secure drop box that's outside of your local board of elections. Every board of elections has one of those. They're locked, they're monitored by election officials, so you can put your absentee ballot application in there. That'll cut off some of that postal delay. Um, and same with your ballot. If you get your ballot in the mail back to you, and maybe it's the 27th or maybe it's the 28th, you can take it to the Board of Elections and drop it in that secure box. You have to do it by 7.30 p.m. on uh, April 28th, but uh, it will count if you drop it in that secure drop box. And as I understand it, um, you can also sort of DIY your own absentee ballot request form. Is that right? That's right. So the, the, the requirement in Ohio is that, you know, you just have to provide the information, uh, the, the required information on any sheet of paper. So if you wanted to write it on a cocktail napkin, you could do that. Uh, so you can just write, uh, again, it's your name, address. Um, a little bit of in, uh, important uh, identifying information, your uh, last four digits of your social security number, your driver's license or state ID number. Um, and then it really important, um, because this is a primary election, uh, when you're filling out the form, you have to say what kind of ballot you want. Uh, that is one of the things that voters oftentimes forget. Um, but you have to say whether you want a Democratic, Libertarian, or Republican ballot, or if you want a nonpartisan issues-only ballot. If you forget to put that information, unfortunately, your application will be rejected and you won't be able to get your ballot right away. Let's talk about your organization, All Voting is Local. And... Tell us a little bit about your mission, but also how you play a role in trying to make sure people know how to vote in this unusual time. 
Absolutely. So we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to eliminate barriers to the ballot and expand the right to vote for people so that everyone can cast their ballot and have their voices heard. Um, some of the things that we've been working on, uh, we uh, launched a uh, text campaign along with several of our coalition partners where we have been reaching out to voters uh, to encourage them to first uh, request an absentee ballot. And then we've now shifted into uh, helping those voters uh, by reminding them to get their ballot in the mail. Um, and so it's been really wonderful because, you know, there are millions of Ohioans in the state who have never used vote by mail. Um, we have, you know, so many people that typically like to vote uh, in person on Election Day, and they are just not familiar with the process. And so we've been helping to troubleshoot and walk them through uh, that process. Um, so far, we've uh, sent over 800,000 texts uh, from our volunteers and reached uh, over 220,000 people. Um, we've also launched uh, uh, some tele-town halls where we've reached thousands of people, where we've answered their questions and uh, uh, addressed any concerns that they had. Another thing that we've done is, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, oftentimes there is that th those errors that people make on the absentee ballot request form. Uh, we put together a short explainer video walking step by step of all the information you need to put on, on that. Uh, we've been posting that on social media. Um, thus far, we've had over 500,000 views of that uh, video. So Ohioans are really hungry for this information, and we're trying to get it out as much as we possibly can. So again, everybody is able to vote. And you were talking about some of those um, electronic town halls. I know you're collaborating with the NAACP, with the League of Women Voters. Can you talk about some of those electronic events that are coming up uh, in the coming week? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have uh, several events coming up. Uh, we are partnering with uh, some of our partners. Um, so again, we had a tele we had a teletown hall uh, with NAACP where we call where we were calling out to uh, uh, over 150,000 voters across the state. Uh, the League of Women Voters is hosting a advocacy day uh, where we are again going over some of the issues with uh, voter rights and encouraging people to uh, contact their uh, elected officials to reform our election system, um, which is really important because if you think about uh, the um, uh, COVID-19 crisis, um, yes, we're in this space right now where we're sheltering at home. None of us can predict the future, and we don't know where we're going to be in November, and so we want to push our elected officials to make sure that they uh, have have a uh, plan uh, and, a, and, a, and a strong plan so that every person is able to cast their ballot. Um, in addition, we're doing uh, Facebook Live events uh, in the next week. Um, so we're uh, talking directly with voters and, again, uh, answering their questions. And let's talk briefly about uh, looking forward to November. What sorts of changes would your organization like to see to feel comfortable that people aren't going to be disenfranchised if, in fact, we're voting from home for the general election? So first, we need to make the process a lot easier. Um, so in this election, um, you know, again, the plan that the elected officials passed was uniformly opposed by voter rights groups, the Elections Officials Association, and the Secretary of State because it really didn't give a lot of our boards of elections enough time or voters enough time to navigate the system. 
but also we didn't make it easy because we did only send out this uh, postcard just giving information of how to get a absentee ballot request form. We think it would be much easier and cut off time if people got either an actual ballot in the mail or the request form in the mail. So I think that that's one change that we can make. In addition, though, you know, a lot of people have been um, struggling because they don't have um, a printer at home or they don't have uh, stamps to uh, mail their application back. Um, so we also believe that making the uh, absentee request form online and allowing people to return that back electronically uh, could really help a lot of voters and save a lot of time. And then also making all election mail postage paid. So if you are mailing back an absentee request form, um, that that postage is paid and that we're not struggling for uh, to find a stamp because, you know, unfortunately, many of us just don't have stamps anymore because we pay all of our bills online and do all of our communicating with our friends and our family online. Once again, I've been speaking with Mike Brickner, the state director for All Voting is Local. If you want more information on uh, their services or more information about how you can get involved, you can visit allvotingislocal.org backslash state backslash Ohio. Mike, once again, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today and for the work that you're doing to make sure that Ohioans can vote. No problem, and thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more on Columbus Perspective in just a moment. I'm Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. We're at war with the coronavirus, very dangerous and lethal enemy. You can help by staying home. If you must go out, keep six feet from other people to protect yourself, people living with you, and others. Every action we take or don't take has a real impact. Ohio, we're in this together. Furnished by Governor Mike DeWine in the OAB. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Scott. Good morning, everyone. We welcome you to Face the State. I'm Scott Light. We are packed from a lot to cover from this week. We now know social distancing is working. You will hear from Governor DeWine and Health Director Dr. Amy Acton. I also talked to local Congressman Troy Balderson. Is he ready to talk about another federal stimulus? And honoring the heroes. Heroes who don't wear capes, but boy, do they don scrubs, lab coats, a grocery store apron, or a factory uniform. And we get an important history lesson on health scares during political seasons from one of the best political minds out there who also happens to be an Ohioan. So let's begin this morning with the two state leaders front and center, Governor DeWine and Health Director Dr. Amy Acton. The data is clear. Everything you're doing is flattening the curve, but she still has a warning. Public health is that secret thing you never see until you need it. Um, unfortunately, what I fear could happen in this outbreak is that once again, we've had a huge, and we're in the middle of it, public health victory in shutting this disease down and slowing its spread. The fear I have is that whenever we have these silent victories, people say, well, it was never there to begin with. There was no threat because, because we've won this public health battle. Please, 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 this battle is ongoing. And this is to all my friends out there on the front lines risking their lives every day doing these contact investigations. You are public health and, and we support you forever. Even the most conservative numbers 
of making sure we're prepared for worst case scenarios, to the folks who have said, you know, we're doing so well, you know, we might not run out of ventilators, which is our whole goal all along is to not run out of that precious equipment, not be forced into difficult decisions. They are saying, Dr. Murray at the Institute for Health Metrics is trying to say to you, don't stop doing what you're doing. That's what, what these models are showing. And, and, and I want to talk about one piece of this because it's going to be important. We were the first in, one of the first in in Ohio with these aggressive, bold moves. We want to be one of the first states out. But we're going to need to follow the modeling to get there. We're going to need to follow our testing results once we have them. And, and it's going to be based on this, this, this sort of premise of modeling. So we've tried to break it down for you here. It's all based on susceptible people. It's called SIR modeling. Susceptible, infected, and who's recovered. And this is really back to um, how infectious is this disease? How quickly does it double? We want to see that doubling time get much, much, much longer. We've been seeing doubling times in the United States of three days to six days. We want to get that out to 12 days and farther. So obviously that's more about our state response, but we also want to keep watching the federal response in all this. Many of you are supposed to be getting those federal stimulus checks soon. As a matter of fact, some went out this past week. And there's already talk of another stimulus package, what's being called a fourth phase of it. That's mostly being proposed at this point from Democrats in Congress. I recently asked 12th District Congressman Troy Balderson if he's ready to explore another stimulus already. I'm not there yet. We've done three phases right now. We really need to focus on the phases that we have out there and getting them implemented. I'm sure, you know, we want to make sure that we get the unemployment system up and adequate. I'm sure you heard last week how overwhelmed that system was. We're starting, you know, that we've added more people to the job and family services for those unemployment issues. But we need to focus on making sure that we get out what we currently already have. We had $2.2 trillion in phase three. And I, and I think that's what we really need to focus on right now and make sure we have that ironed out to get that money out to those people. First of all, for me, my top priority is the small business. Um, we've, we've got to be have a, a place for this economy once we ramp back up again to be in place and to be starting so the small businesses can get open back up again and we can get employer employees back to work. The other piece is you know, we, we did the, the money out to the, the constituents and throughout America. I think that's important. Uh, but also the number three thing is the unemployment, uh, making sure we get this un unemployment piece uh, functioning up to par uh, and, and making sure that those people are getting relief from that also. Coronavirus has exposed holes, some big and some massive, in the American healthcare system. We are now the epicenter in this worldwide pandemic. Many people have posed this How in the world does the richest country in the world not have enough PPE, personal protective equipment, for our medical community? Well, CAS, a division of the American Chemical Society, donated some. 50,000 latex gloves going to those on the front lines right there at OSU's Wexner Medical Center. That same company also released a massive amount of scientific data with some big hopes. Hopes that data will lead to antiviral drugs and possibly even a vaccine for the coronavirus. But many infectious disease experts want to remind us, though, vaccines are complex. They can take 10 years or longer to bring to market. Our chief investigative reporter, Bennett Haverly, has that part of the story. Columbus-based CAS has opened its doors, so to speak. The scientific information company published a large data set 
filled with chemical compounds and known antiviral properties it hopes can lead someone, a super smart someone, to come up with a COVID-19 solution. I spoke to Vice President Michael Dennis over video chat. So uh, I guess a, an appropriate analogy would be you guys are essentially providing the library for all of these researchers to go to this place and, and try to come up with some sort of solution. That's correct. But we're not just providing the raw books. We're trying to help them with leads to get to the right, to accelerate that research and not uh, uh, waste time to get to that cure more quickly. We're, we know we're going to get to, to treatments. It's not a matter of if, it's just a question of when. So we're going to do our part to accelerate that. Since releasing that data, Dennis says it's been downloaded by 200,000 scientists all over the world. In the coming months, the hope is that it will lead them to additional antiviral therapies, and that can help patients suffering from the virus. And the hope beyond that? Possibly a vaccine. When are we going to get out of this? Do you guys have an idea? We have some insights, and uh, we know it's coming. Uh, I, I can't say whether it's going to be next month or, or in two months or three months, but Absolutely, the treatments are out there, and uh, we know the vaccines are going to take a little bit longer. There are no concrete crystal ball answers right now. While patient studies on antivirals are drawing interest and expected to start the coming months, a vaccine is still further down the road. Michael Dennis says his company began pulling research and data sets together in earnest about two months ago, after the White House put out a call for help. Did you see this wave coming? Did you guys know, based on what was happening overseas, that that we were going to get hit hard? I mentioned that we've been around for 100 plus years, so we aggregate all of the science. So we have we can uh, see interesting trends in science before others can. So yes, we had inklings that this was coming. Were you guys screaming from the rooftops that people need to pay attention? I don't know that it was screaming from the rooftop, but we started to do our part on the research side for sh- for sure. Michael Dennis says those anxious to get their hands on antiviral therapies should be patient, which can be hard for those dealing with COVID-19. But large data sets about antiviral therapies aren't the only focus for CAS. They're also being asked to translate critical information from the Ohio Department of Health into foreign languages. Reporting in Columbus, Bennett Haverly, 10TV News. Cell head this morning, not all heroes wear capes. In just a minute, let's all salute the heroes keeping us safe, fed, and taken care of. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV. There are 100,000 restaurant and bar workers without jobs in Ohio due to this shutdown and stay-at-home orders. That's according to the Ohio Restaurant Association. Two Columbus restaurant owners say that even though they can't give their workers a paycheck, they can make sure their families eat. 10TV's Glenn McIntyre shows us how. Samantha Giesiggy has been a server for 21 years. It's... A real love of the public. I really love interacting with people that start off as strangers. The job she loved and the income it provided evaporated with the state-ordered shutdown of much of the service industry. Inside of three days, um, I would say almost all of my friends lost their jobs. The last income she had was March 12th. I think it is at a crisis point because um, there is no foreseeable change. It was three weeks ago that 10TV spoke with her boss about the obligation she felt to her staff. It's heartbreaking, you know. I don't know how to help them. 
you know, and I don't know if there's an answer. Sangeeta Lakani owns the table. She has had to lay off nearly her entire staff. Whatever loans, grants, unemployment, bartender grant, like whatever people are applying for, they're not going to see for weeks. People are hungry right now. Matthew Hagens co-owns Ambrose and Eve. He had to let go his entire staff of 60 people. The human toll is, is, is the, the biggest impact on me. A toll being felt by service families all over our community. The situation is becoming more dire for people, you know, like day by day. Um, uh, I think over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a real increase in the amount of people that, you know, pretty um, desperately need access to, to food. After the initial shock of the shutdown, he and Lakani decided there had to be something they could do to help. We got to feed our people. It's the thing that we know how to do. That's when service was born. It's service. It's a, a relief project for hospitality industry workers. Um, our very simple goal is to feed two to 400 service industry people and their families a day, seven days a week. We're going to assemble a staff uh, that we're going to pay so we can like actually do some employment. Um, and that was really important to us. Um, uh, but we have to raise money to, to make food. We're shooting for a food cost of less than $5 a meal. They are accepting donations and selling T-shirts. Each will allow them to feed three people. It is our job right now to take care of them. And this is what we know how to do best. They're hungry and we're going to make sure they have one healthy meal a day. We didn't want to get hung up on feeling sorry about the things that are going on. We just knew that something needed to be done. Glenn McIntyre, 10 TV News. You can find out more about service from our website at 10tv.com. Those folks are just a few of the thousands of Ohioans stepping up to help their fellow Ohioan. And to that point, we saluted them with an hour-long special we called Not All Heroes Wear Capes. Here's the story we aired on Governor DeWine's leadership in all this. Hard to believe that it's been just five weeks since the governor made that first big announcement to respond to COVID-19 that was coming, and that was not allowing spectators at the Arnold. In a crisis, Governor DeWine proves the old adage, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. Because he had a rough start to explaining the coming coronavirus. Why? He had to begin this whole process by banning hundreds of thousands of people from attending the Arnold Classic. It was certainly not an easy decision. Think about that week. That was just weeks ago. And look at how life has changed since the changes to the Arnold and every day since. Perhaps DeWine's most applauded move has been this. He followed the science and the data of a coming pandemic. We are in a race. Uh, what we do each day impacts uh, our defenders. Our defenders are the people on the front line, the nurses, the doctors, hospital personnel, uh, people who work in nursing homes. Uh, these are the people who are really... A, they're heroes. As the number of confirmed Ohio cases kept climbing to now in the thousands, the governor prepped our state for a surge of more cases. But we know that the peak is coming. We know that the surge is coming. And so what you're doing uh, is buying time for our health care system to get the equipment it needs, to build out the hospital space, 
and to do the things necessary so that we are not overrun and that we don't see what we're seeing on TV, um, which is hospital personnel who are just in a horrible, horrible, horrible situation. Talk about another horrible situation. This health crisis has led to an economic one. The financial markets have cratered. Malls and mom and pop stores are shut down. So are restaurants and bars. Ohio's unemployment system can't handle the record number of people filing for unemployment benefits. To all of you, uh, I thank you for what you're doing. Uh, we are in this together. Uh, this is not easy for any of us. Uh, certainly uh, not easy uh, for people of Ohio dealing with this every single day, particularly people who've lost a job. Just as he's leaned on medical experts for real-time data on the coronavirus, he's now leaning on experts for economic advice. DeWine formed an executive council of business and economic leaders. I know many of you are now unemployed. I know many of you who run small businesses are worried about that small business. Are you going to be able to get it started back up? And I, I, fully, I fully understand that. Along with empathy and data, DeWine has leaned into something else that history books tell us successful leaders have also displayed in crisis, hope and optimism. He does shout outs in his daily briefings. His staff tweets out videos of students and everyday people doing what they can to stay safe and stay healthy. And every day he circles back to this notion. If we all fight this for the good of the whole, eventually the whole will be good again. Thank you for the sacrifices that you've been making. Uh, you're making financial sacrifices. You're making personal sacrifices. But we have to stay in this. Uh, we cannot let what we've accomplished, and we have accomplished a lot. We are in a decent position, uh, a lot better than we would have been. What you have done is saved a number of lives. But we are still in this. Uh, this is not over with. But the action we're taking today is action uh, that I know, I know will save lives. So many people also wanted to say thanks to the heroes. I'm Congresswoman Joyce Baby. I am proud of our community and great leaders. And salute all those who are helping to save lives and making a difference in all of our lives. Every day in around the clock, doctors and nurses, other healthcare providers, researchers, EMTs, firefighters, police officers, cleaning crews, food bank and delivery providers, postal workers and transit workers, and many, many more are working hard, providing selfless service with courage and commitment to help keep us safe and healthy during these difficult times. So to you, I say thank you from the bottom of my heart for all that you've done and continue to do to save lives in our community, this state, and nation. Thank you, because we are all in this together. God bless you, and God bless America. Hi, it's Urban and Shelley Meyer, and uh, you know, heroes nowadays, it's, it's far too easy to become a hero. You score a touchdown, you, you win games, you run fast, and those aren't the heroes. I've been saying that for many, many years, that the true heroes are the selfless servants out there, and 
And right now in this pandemic, you have people at Central Ohio working grocery stores and first responders, the medical professionals, pharmacists, all the people taking care of us. We just want to thank you and tell you are the true heroes. Yes, we cannot thank you enough. Hey, you know, heroes don't always wear capes. Sometimes they wear scrubs and they wear name tags. And we just appreciate all of you. Everybody be safe and be well and stay healthy. Go Bucks. God bless you and go Bucks. There was another major news story, not about the coronavirus, but who may lead the country if there is another one. We are, after all, just under seven months exactly to the November presidential election, and it's all but official who your two choices will be now. I want to preface our last segment by saying this. Please don't think we're being flippant by discussing presidential politics in the middle of a health crisis. As a public affairs and political show, we also can't ignore major news in determining who will take on President Trump. We now know it'll be Joe Biden because Senator Bernie Sanders dropped out. If anything, COVID-19 has us all thinking about the definition of leadership. And in that vein, I ask an Ohioan, Kyle Condick right there of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. I ask him how Americans view that all important word, leadership through the lens of a crisis. I think we've all become sort of accustomed to staying away from other people and social distancing and whatnot. Is anyone really gonna wanna go to these conventions in August or are they gonna have to be changed in some ways? Are they gonna have to be run virtually? I mean, the president in particular seems to feed off of these um, uh, these big campaign rallies that he has, and I think he'd be loath to cancel the Republican convention. But at the same time, we just don't know what, what the state of things is going to be. And there's also the possibility that this crisis dies down in the summer and then kind of roars back in the fall when the weather changes. The, the economic disruptions that I think we're starting to see and that will uh, really start to pop up in, in the data over the next few months. Uh, that would generally be a bad sign for an incumbent president that, you know, here we're in election year and the economic numbers, it seems like at least in the short term, are going to be very, very bad. But at the same time, I think a lot of people may not necessarily blame the president for that. I do think that that folks may, you know, may, may hold the president accountable for what they perceive to be the quality of the response. Um, and look, that's a story that's still being written. You know, it's, again, it's possible that, that people will ultimately think that uh, um, that, the, that the government did, did a good did a good enough job under under the circumstances. So so we shall see. You know, there there have been so many big news happenings during the the the, the, uh, the Trump's time in the White House, and so many of those things just seem to happen and be a big deal when they're happening and then sort of fade away. I'd almost uh, would put impeachment in in that category, particularly now, but certainly. The coronavirus is, 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 I think, the most significant thing to happen during the Trump presidency, just in terms of its actual effect on people's lives, in that essentially everyone has been affected by this to, to a small degree or, or, to, or to a large degree in terms of the disruption of their lives or you know, even, even people getting coronavirus, people dying from it. Uh, um, and so this is, this is I think, the, the sort of the, the crucible for the Trump administration. And ultimately, you know, we'll just have to see how people, uh, people feel about it. Thanks, Kyle. And we thank you for joining us today. That'll wrap it up. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We are in this together, Ohio. That's again Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone from Charlestown, West Virginia, is Dr. Wally E. Boston. He's the president of APU, American Public University. How are you? I'm pretty good today. Thank you. 
Thanks for talking to us. Uh, tell us a little bit about APU. So we were founded uh, in 1991, um, and in 1993 we started taking our first uh, students uh, studying at a distance. Uh, Internet was in its nascency, so we used primarily uh, email on a website, but um, since since that time period, uh, we've we've grown to a uh, little more than eighty thousand students, um, and uh, are well respected in the uh, military communities. Where probably a little more than sixty percent of our students uh, take courses through a sister school, uh, American Military University. And then some time ago, uh, we 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 established American Public University uh, with similar programs, but more oriented towards people that, um, you know, had, had a uh, non-military background. I see on the website that you are one of the bigger online higher education providers now. We, we are. Uh, we, we've uh, been, been doing this a long time. Uh, we cater more to uh, adult learners than, than we do the traditional college-age population of 18 to 22, so people who um, have a full-time job and, and, and want to get ahead by either getting that next degree or, or finishing the degree they never finished uh, can study online with us. And we've tried to be very student-centric over the years, so instead of you know, three semester starts a year, like many traditional schools, we, we start a semester on the first Monday of every month. So 12 times a year we start a semester. And um, so if you're, you're working full time and January doesn't work for you, maybe you can start in February or maybe you can start in, in March. And we're talking to you because uh, with what's going on with the coronavirus, it has thrown education at every level into limbo. And you folks are kind of uh, throwing out some uh, areas where you might be able to help. Right, right. We, we um, back in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina uh, wiped, wiped out schools on the Gulf Coast temporarily, uh, we, we made a similar offer. Uh, so uh, when the situation uh, came up, we felt that, um, you know, we looked at our, you know, pri- primarily summer months of May, June, July, and August, and said there's probably going to be some uh, college students that drop out of their spring course because they can't complete it with labs or something. And then their schools, if they can't uh, hold on-ground classes for summer school, may, may cancel summer school. We don't want to be perceived as, as taking those students away, but uh, if we can help them earn credit, let's see if we could take advantage of our size and, and our capacity and, and, and you know, offer, offer them a scholarship for up to two classes over the summer. So you've got a, a program, a, a scholarship program called Momentum 2020. Tell us about it. So uh, what we did, we, we looked at uh, our capacity. We, we, off, we, we have a little more than 120 degree programs and, and in any one month, uh, we have more than 1,200 online uh, classes in, in, in those varied degree programs. We felt that uh, there's probably not a course that we offer that somebody couldn't use. And, and we looked at our capacity and said, you know, we could over a four month period take up to 20,000 students and you know because they would be incremental students we, we could we could offer them uh, a, a, a scholarship uh, to lower the cost and so you know just little backseat math work working with our CFO and the IT team and everybody else we, we figured out that uh, you know uh, we, we could 
have capacity for 20,000 students, which is about $20 million in scholarships. And uh, we'll, we'll see if, uh, you know, it's, it's still a little early because most of them are still finishing that, that spring term. But we'll see if uh, our gut reaction, would, which was, you know, many students are taking summer classes and they make it canceled if, if, if that uh, bears out. I guess uh, I had seen some uh, sort of report that showed that a lot of students, including kids coming out of high school that are planning on going to, to college in the fall, you know, their plans are completely up in the air, and, and some are talking about taking a year off to wait and see what happens. This at least would give them uh, something still cooking, you know, before that happened. It, it would, and, and we pride ourselves in, in being affordable. We've, we've always tried to keep our tuition below the in-state rate at most uh, you know, four-year universities. So for, for about $500 a class, with this, you know, including this scholarship, you could get ahead. So we, we, we think it's a competitive offer. And if people want to delay a decision and take some more courses, then, you know, uh, that, that's fine too. But, uh, you know, our, our interest was to make up a difference. I mean, I, I have two daughters who are in college and they happen to be athletes and their season starts in the fall and you know that that's up in the air for them as well so uh we'll we'll, we'll see how uh how it shapes up a lot a lot of uncertainty right now talking with wally boston he is the president of apu american public university in charlestown west virginia where do you see this distance learning going i mean this this is really changing the workplace the education field just about every area of societies changing as a result of this. I, I think you're right. I think companies are finding that they can operate remotely, uh, and uh, you know that's going to be an interesting point when they have lease renewals for offices that perhaps they they find they don't need as many people in an office. I think uh, in, in in our case, we've we've always operated our, our university with our students and our faculty remote, but we 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 have office space where we have our admissions teams and, and our finance teams. And, you know, we're, we're going to probably, even ourselves, take a look because we, we've been functioning without missing a beat. Um, we, we had in advance thinking that, you know, in our area of the country, uh, the weather is a bigger issue uh, for outages. And so we, we years ago we made a decision to issue everybody laptops instead of that desktops and, and put in a phone system that would, uh, as soon as that, uh, laptop was plugged into the internet would locate them so that their phone at their uh, desk would roll right over to the phone at their their laptop. So it, it took us about a week to transition our staff out, but uh, you know our, our faculty are still scattered in all 50 states and 14 countries, and our students are in all 50 states and about 100 countries uh, because many of them serve in the military overseas. Uh, and our business is functioning fine. That's great. If uh, prospective students would have uh, an interest in pursuing what you have to offer, how do they find out more about it? You can go to www.apus.edu, and I think we have a banner that talks about the Momentum Scholarship, or they can just click on APU and, and, and look uh, at our programs. All right. Uh, Dr. Wallace Boston, he's president of APU. Anything else you'd like to add? I do. I, I just think that uh, this online has the potential to uh, really shake up regular college, uh, both good and bad. And uh, I think in the long run, we'll, we'll see, uh, particularly that students have been home with their parents now for half a semester, 
I think we'll see some people making the decision that perhaps paying a lot more money uh, to go to a residential location just may not be worth it. So we'll see economically what happens. Wally Boston again, president, APU, American Public University. Give us the website one more time. www.apus.edu. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.